Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. This is Tracy Slatten. Happy New Year. Welcome to Independent Artists and Thinkers. This is our first show of the new year. So to all my listeners, happy 2017. I hope it's an amazing and wonderful year for you. And um, we have a great show lined up for you today. I'm really excited, happy, and so grateful that so many people are listening to the show uh, live and in the archives and the iTunes podcast channel and in Blueberry and Stitcher. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you're enjoying these interviews because I am. Uh, I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. And uh, what it really is, uh, uh, someone I was talking to said, is this is a show where I get to talk to really cool people and who are um, involved in interesting and cool things. So that kind of makes it fun. Some upcoming guests on January 10th, recording artist Rochelle Royale and director-producer TJ Scott will be on talking about the making of a star. Those will be fun. Tune in. Keep checking the Facebook page or the website to see who will be on the show. Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash independent artist thinkers, and I post the shows on there. And then the website is independentartistthinkers.com. Uh, please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers, and the chat room is open now. Uh, email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at tracy at tracylslatin.com, and tracy is spelled T-R-A-C-I. I want to let you know about some author events that I'll be doing. I will be, I will be doing an author talk at the Hamilton Grange Library in New York City on January 28th at 3 p.m. And I'll be doing an author talk at the Riverside Library in New York on February 11th at 2 p.m. I'll be a guest on Mommy Interrupted on Sunday, January 29th at 8 p.m. And that's WLINY Radio. And I'll be a guest on The Librarian, which is a blog talk radio show that's part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network with host Tabitha Pope on Thursday, February 16th at 9 p.m. The, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. That'll be fun. And just today, uh, I'm doing um, going to be at a book club, the Women's Novels of New York Book Club on 2-2, and you can find that um, in the meetup page for the New York and that should be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about all those things. So it would be wonderful to see you at one of the libraries or if you want to join the Women's Novels of New York Club on the meetup, that would be great. Uh, I also want to let you know and remind you that Independent Artists and Thinkers podcasts are available on Blueberry and on Stitcher as well as on the iTunes podcast channel. So there are a lot of ways to listen. I am so delighted and honored today to have as our guest, researching psychologist and TEDx speaker, Jennifer Harmon. Jennifer Jill Harmon, PhD, is an associate professor of applied social and health psychology at Colorado State University, and her research specialty is on the study of intimate relationships, particularly those 
relationships in which there's parental alienation occurring. She has published several recent peer-reviewed papers examining the role of stereotypes and biases in the perception and sanctioning of parental alienating behaviors. And she's the co-author of the book, Parents Acting Badly, How Institutions and Societies Promote the Alienation of Children from Their Loving Families. Dr. Harmon is also on the board of directors for a new nonprofit offering services and resources to parents who are the target of parental alienation, simplyparent.org. Jennifer, hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really delighted um, to have you on. I watched your TEDx talk, and it was really it was a great talk. Oh, thank you. So um, you're doing some really important work, and there's a lot to talk about. But I wanted to start with my usual opening question for my guests because it situates listeners into who you are and what you're about. And I want to warn you, it's a big multi-part question, so do with it what you will. So take the question and answer it in the way that feels right to you. Um, okay. So this is it. <laughs> How did you begin your journey? And what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be involved with psychological research and parental alienation in particular? Was psychology a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? So tell me about your childhood. Start then and lead up to now. (laughs) Well, it's a long journey. (laughs) Oh, Let's see. Um, well, I grew up, um, my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. Um, and when they divorced, my mother went back and got a, uh, a master's in psychology. And so she became a psychologist or a, and then later a nurse practitioner, uh, doing, uh, psychotherapy with veterans. Uh, and so I was always around health and health related issues, public health issues, um, and but I, I was I wasn't really drawn to medicine per se. I was interested in the psychological um, underpinnings about why people do things, uh, and that was just from high school on. All my friends used to confide in me. I was sort of the go-to person, and so counseling was really what drew me um, early on in my college career. I wanted to be a counselor, uh, and I got my master's degree in counseling and. I actually went into substance abuse counseling and helped people who were recovering uh, from um, different, you know, engagement in different substance uh, abuse uh, problems and recovering from uh, reintegrating into society after being incarcerated. And so I was really interested in kind of helping people um, recover from really traumatic and difficult things. Uh, and then I kind of reached a turning point I think in my late 20s when I decided I wanted to, I I liked counseling but it wasn't enough for me. I really was interested in research uh and understanding better why uh people were dealing with such really significant issues that can't be treated on a one by, one-on-one basis. You know, mm-hmm. psychotherapy is fantastic and people it needs to be there, but I felt like I could do more um and really um understand um, and create programs that maybe address problems at a more societal level to make um, make it easier to do prevention services on one-on-one level. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's when I went back and got my doctorate in social psychology at University of Connecticut. Uh, and when I was there, I worked really closely with some people who studied intimate relationships. And I was fascinated at that point in my career on how relationships can be positive or negative, um, how social support and um, conflict can affect um, kind of the health, um, psychological and physical health of other people in the family. Um, And so my research really started there, uh, and for many years that's what I studied is intimate relationships and how uh, relationships affect how we perceive others, how we perceive risk in relationships, and and so a lot of my early research career focused on that. Um, and it wasn't until I and uh, my husband started experiencing parental alienation that I started becoming interested in that as a research topic. Um, it's because I, it, when it started happening to us, we didn't really know what it was called. We, we, we were just shocked that um, alienation was possible. Um, how do people get away with this and how painful it was and how little resources there are for people who are dealing with it. 
And mm-hmm. we thought we were alone because not most people who are dealing with this often also don't have a name for it. There isn't they there aren't any services. A lot of people deny that it's it's a phenomenon at all. Uh and so I as a researcher just started looking around for peer-reviewed studies and other things to find answers to the questions that I was having. And I was sort of appalled by the fact that even as a as an expert on intimate relationships, I didn't know what it was that we were going, what was happening to us. Uh, I, I didn't understand why in the research community that hadn't been something that was heavily studied. Um, and And so that sort of launched my interest in the topic. Um, not only because I had my own questions about what we were we were experiencing in our family, but um, mm-hmm. just because I was kind of curious as to why, as a field in especially in social psychology and intimate relationship research, this is kind of an untouched topic of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's really what started my or it started my journey and how I got to where I am today. That's that's interesting. Um, how do you define or explain parental alienation to people who haven't heard of it before? Even though, like, I noticed one of your statistics um, was that uh, you estimate some 22 million adults in, in the United States are experiencing some form of it. Um, but how do you explain it to people, you know, in a way that they can understand it? It's uh, a good question because it's – a challenging thing to explain because a lot of people think that uh, if you're being alienated from a child or a child doesn't want to see you or doesn't um, doesn't or is very angry towards you that you have done something wrong uh, and so there's a, a, an assumption that any type of alienation is the parent's fault um, when there's considerable decades of research showing that that's not the case. Um, And so when I explain to my colleagues even who study relationships, they ask me, how is this different than estrangement? How is this different than abuse? Um, I have to sort of describe the nuances of the differences between them. Uh, And so the way I really describe alienation is it's, it's a it's a set of behaviors and outcomes uh, associated with um, a parent who's doing something to try to hurt the other parent. Uh, and so, um, so whereas estrangement and other types of um, abuse are more one-on-one between the parent and the child, um, parental alienation is really behaviors directed between the with one parent intending to hurt the other one. The children are the casualties in this um, dynamic. And so when you explain it that way, where it's sort of a, it's between two parents that it's the problem, I think, you know, people start to kind of, I think, understand it a little bit better. Yeah, in your TEDx talk, you talk about it, um, well, there's a couple of things, but one of the things you talk about is um, domestic violence. And you also mm-hmm. said you had to learn a lot about aggression, human aggression. Yeah, uh, my colleagues and I have, um, in thinking about this and coming at it from a um, social psychological perspective, um, really seen that this is a form of domestic violence. Um, the, the outcomes on children are abusive um, because it, it hurts them. Um, but really when you're looking at aggression, um, you have to look at what the intent of the aggression is. And I I struggle with the belief that parents who do this are really trying to hurt their child. I I think that they believe, they truly believe that they're doing something to protect them, um, even though it's not often a rational belief because their belief about the other parent is oftentimes very warped or biased or influenced by sort of a personality disorder or something, um, something to that effect. And so it's... When you really look at what the intent of the behavior is, it's to hurt the other parent. Um, and and when you look at it that way, that's that's what domestic violence is. Um, domestic violence isn't just physical abuse. It's It encompasses many other types of violence and aggression, such as psychological aggression, financial abuse. Uh, and so I believe that this is really a, a another type of domestic violence that um, that we need to include when we screen people for being victims of of that problem. And you also talk about our ingrained cultural expectations, and you talk in your TED Talk about 
how um, parental alienation um, is dependent on, you consider it a social justice issue. Can you explain that? Yeah, um, parental alienation is um, the the way that we perceive victims of it um, is really what drove some of, of, of my beliefs about this um, because we perceive victims or people who are targets of this as being um, responsible for it. Uh, and so when we look at how alienators accomplish what accomplish their aggression, so how they accomplish the alienation, um, they're successful at it by using stereotypes that we have about mothers and fathers or men and women. Um, the stereotypes we have about mothers and fathers are closely tied to gender, uh, and so there's a lot of overlap. Um, and so for a person to... Uh, for a mother to get away with alienation, it's not too hard because we have a lot of negative stereotypes about fathers. Uh, and so um, mothers can say very, um, you know, make accusations of abuse, make accusations of, um, you know, being neglectful. Um, and that really triggers a lot of detailed beliefs that people have about gender um, and, and fatherhood. Uh, and they inherently believe it or they will jump to conclusions and believe that what is being said and then that person the target of that alienation has no defense um it's it's much like racial stereotypes that we have people oftentimes assume a lot of things and then it, it colors and biases all later information that they perceive about that person so the person really has no defense um, when fathers alienate, um, they can do that by triggering stereotypes we have about mothers that are very negative, such as um, having mental illness, because um, a lot of times um, there's a lot of stereotypes about mothers being crazy um, or kind of um, helicopter parents and, you know, being too too involved. Um, and so when they do that, um, that can really trigger feelings that we have about mothers. Or if a mother works, um, which I mentioned in my TED Talk, or if she's a career um, person, then then that, that triggers beliefs that she's not a good mother, she's unmotherly. Um, and then that's used against her, and she has no defense, also similar to the fathers in the other situation. And so it becomes a real social justice issue because those beliefs and stereotypes are tied to the laws that we create about who's the fit parent, um, it, it ties into how custody decisions are made in the courts. It ties into wh what police believe when um, a parent makes an accusation of abuse or neglect. Uh, and so it really strips the parent of rights um, or any defense that they have against uh, these claims that the other parent makes. Yeah. Um, it's also... Um you know the the alienating parent is also very strategic. You know it's not an accident oh, yes. <laughs> when parental alienation comes around. Yes, um, and that, that's something I think you know people sometimes get very defensive when they when they hear about alienation and they say, oh wow, I, I I've sometimes said some bad things about my ex. Um, people do that when people get angry or there's a breakup or they get upset about something that the other parent did. You know, some, everybody's, you know, we're all human. Sometimes people will, will make comments about the other parent that they didn't mean to say to a child. Uh, that is not alienation. Um, that, you know, it's not good. It's not it's not good that a parent does that. Um, alienation is more of a longer-term strategic attempt to really hurt the other parent by doing these behaviors. Um, you know, there's, you know, clinicians kind of disagree a little bit about whether this is completely intentional or if it's really tied to some underlying, you know, pathology of the parent. Um, there, you know, I believe there's probably an element of both uh, operating. Um, and there's a, there's a large spectrum of severity of, of these behaviors. Um, sometimes people do it and they're not really aware and it's very mild and subtle, but it still has a very negative effect on the child. Um, other times it's very blatant and severe. And so, yeah, it, and it, it is a long-term campaign. It, it's not a one-time one deal. It doesn't only happen at divorce. I mean, many of the parents that I've interviewed and worked with have been dealing with alienation for 10 years or more. Um, so this is a very long-standing problem. Yeah, on the phone with me, you had said um, that there are parents that are not in a divorce situation um, who are still living in the home, who are experiencing 
for target parents and are experiencing alienating tactics by the other parents? Yes, um, we've interviewed several parents who uh, were actually not divorced, and they they knew that if they left, they would probably never see their children again, um, because they knew that their their spouse um, was um, had a lot of the traits. For example, borderline personality disorder, narcissism, or oftentimes uh, people who are extremely narcissistic um, tend to be more likely to do this. Doesn't mean that all narcissistic parents will do it, but um, this parent knew that and was told one of the parents that we interviewed was told that if he left that he would be never see his children again. So there's some parents who don't leave and they're almost prisoners in their own home until yeah. they can find some sort of protection because um, they want to save their relationship with their child. Um, and so, um, and, and we know actually a research with my co-author on um, our book, parents acting badly um, in research that she's done um, a lot of uh, adult children who've been, um, that we that they've surveyed have indicated that even in intact families alienation was happening. So it, we don't know if it's a precursor for divorce, uh, whether the, you know these tactics or strategies to get loyalty from the child um, to have leverage in the divorce um, or to maintain kind of a, a relationship and uh, having having a child's alliance and um, loyalty is a provides more power for a parent uh, in situations where there's custody or um, kind of change in um, child support um, and and power in terms of how society sees you. You know, if you have a child and you're the parent, you get a little bit more power and prestige, particularly as a mother. Um, but mm-hmm. fathers do as well. Fathers get gold stars when they <laughs> when they do fatherly things. Uh, and so it is a, a source of power for a lot of parents. And so it's... Um, you know, we see it in intact families as well as uh, divorced families. That's that's sort of hard. I think in a lot of families, I don't know, in many families, there seems to be a you know difference in status, and one parent will have less status, and one parent will have more. Yeah, um, that's definitely. Um, something that I found and one of the things that actually has intrigued me about this research because I as in my research career um, studying intimate relationships I've studied power and in fact we have a book um, an edited book that I'm working on right now with a number of uh, social psychologists looking at uh, power and relationships and understanding it better um, and so and I think with parental alienation it's a very unique use of power um, because Children here, in this case, um, provide capital uh, to the parent who has their alliance. Um, And so it's really hard, I think, um, you know, to think about how – we don't like to think about domestic issues where people are abusing power in that way Mm -hmm. because it seems so cold. But – and it seems, you know, I think so – you know, insensitive, but parents do it. I mean, you know, it's, people get a lot of sympathy if they say, oh, I'm a single parent, or, you know, they get a lot of, uh, or if they, they say something negative about the other parent, they get sort of sort of this implicit or um, kind of sanctioning uh, from others, like, oh, wow, how do you do it? How did you survive it? Mm-hmm. And they don't question the, the claims that these parents are making, but the children are being used to get that kind of power, um, and it's it, it's done in a very kind of insidious way, um, and you know we know power corrupts and other things, and so we don't like mm-hmm. to often think of mothers or fathers doing that, but um, sadly they do it. Um, they do it a lot. So. Well, so I'm just trying to formulate some questions. Um, mm-hmm. What are some? What happens to the kids? <laughs> what are some of their you know what? What kind of what are the results of parental alienation for children? Uh, the results are very negative overall. Um, it's and it varies a lot by the type of uh, child or you know the temperament of the child, the personality of the child, um, and and also how much contact they've been able to have with both parents, um, and so um, and also how severe the alienation is, the alienating behaviors are um, that are being exhibited by the parent. Um, And so the outcomes can really range from just, you know, a lot of 
um, splitting kind of a personality type, you know, within the with the child. So, for example, the child may learn that they just have to act one way with one parent, and maybe they can be themselves with a healthier parent. Um, and this is a healthy way to cope with it. It's compartmentalizing, you know, internally their experience. But unfortunately, that child then kind of has to learn to live two separate lives and, and pretend to be one way. And and it's a, it's a survival tactic that's effective temporarily. But then later when they develop relationships, it can be challenging to have um, a very, you know, present and healthy relationship with another adult as they grow up. Um, so that was probably the m- more subtle or kind of less severe outcome in a child. Um, but, you know, we've seen, you know, kids become suicidal, there's academic decline, there's, um, you know, psychological disorders, um, co- a lot of conduct disorders in, in young children in particular um, because of the conflict they're experiencing. And, and it's not conflict really that is shared between two parents. It's the internal conflict a child feels when they're being told that someone that is part of them is bad. Um, that's part of their identity. From a child's perspective, uh, even if the other, even if the parent is actually abusive or negative, a child still sees them as part of them, and it's really hard for even abused children to really reconcile that in, in, internally. Um, and so when they're being alienated and there's not really always a good justification for that alienation, the child has no choice but to just flat out reject them, and then that creates some very severe um, path, pathological outcomes in children, um, and they... Um, you know, I think that, you know attention deficit disorder and a lot of other negative outcomes are really the cons- the, the result of that. Um, anxiety, from what I've read, too, is a big one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when a child is told lies about a parent, um, for example, like oh your that parent didn't pay or your your mother or father didn't pay child support this month, even though maybe they did, uh, that child then is going to feel anxiety and frustration and anger towards that parent. And then, so it creates this really internal, because um, you know, they still love that parent. Right? <laughs> even the children who are severely alienated, deep down uh, there's a love for that parent that they can never acknowledge um, or they haven't been allowed to acknowledge. That can um, be really hard, you know, for an alienated parent to see because uh, um, an alienated child can treat the parent with just such a callousness that can be shocking that the, that the yeah. parent is actually a non-person. At least that's what the treatment is like, the behavior is like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's actually one of the distinguishing factors between a child as being alienated versus a child that's being estranged or abused. And what we see with children who are being estranged or abused from a parent, they have ambivalence towards that parent. They love them, but yet they're afraid or anxious uh, to be with them. Whereas when there's alienation occurring, there's flat out, um, you know, anger and, um, you know, not wanting to see that parent or um, hating that parent for very minor and, you know, false reasons or made-up reasons that another parent has fed to them, Um, and it's not ambivalent. There's lack of guilt about it, Um, and so really that guilt factor is is important. It's a really important distinguisher in how you can really tell when when alienation is occurring. Yeah, I think that's what's really hard for a target parent is the lack of guilt that the alienated children feel towards the target parent. They just really don't care about the target parent's feelings. The, the target parent has no feelings, is not human. It's, you know, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's very painful. And, and even for parents who have later reconciled with their children, um, sometimes we see where when, when the children grow up and they go to college or they're a little older and they've had time away from the alienating parent, um, some some children have come around or come to realize that uh, what had been occurring uh, in their childhood and they've tried to make peace with the the parent that was targeted um, and they apologize and want to make it up to them. But, you know, it's really hard being the targeted parent to not forget that. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. um, you, you can maybe forgive it, but it's an extremely painful loss. You know, you've lost pretty much that your entire, that, childhood with that child or with the with the 
you know, your offspring. And so um, there's no way to get that back. Um, and so there's a real grief associated with that, that this, that you you can never get that time back. Yeah. I I always think of, um, because this was the pu- in the public domain, I guess I can talk about it. You know, Alec Baldwin, when there was that divorce and he left that message on his daughter's voicemail, but I always thought there must have been some kind of parental alienation going on because his frustration and his anger, you know, when a targeted parent is trying to face a child who is so completely callous and remorseless toward the target parent's feelings, that can come out. Yeah, and, and that's unfortunately when when parents are dealing with this, it's there's there's no support. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times people blame the victim. Uh, they assume they're doing something wrong. Um, you know, there's a lot of parents who are suicidal. Um, many have committed suicide, um, sadly, um, as a consequence of dealing with this. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people resort to drinking or using drugs to cope with um, the loss of a child. Uh, because it really is a, you know, a grief that, you know, you know this child's alive and hates you for no reason. Um, and a lot of parents question their sanity. They question their ability to parent, even though they haven't done anything wrong. And it's it's very demoralizing. Um, and it's it's probably, you know, it's it's extru- uh, you know, there's no way to really compare that kind of grief with even any other kind of grief. It's a uh, you know, it's not like a kidnapping where you know no one blames the kid, the per, the parent of the child that's kidnapped. <laughs> it's a grief where you, maybe that child's alive, maybe they're not. You don't know. Um, it's a different grief because that child is there. You know that they're there. They hate you. There's nothing you can say or do to change their opinion of you. Um, and it's and sometimes it's, a, it's, a target parent yeah. who tries to change the kid's point of view just ends up driving them further away. Yes. Yeah. Though the child, the 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 degree of enmeshment and the degree of kind of alliance that the child has with the alienator is really strong. Um, and it's they'll protect that parent. They will not listen to anything that the targeted parent has to say, um, or they won't question it. Um, they won't, or you know, the, they'll never question the the alienator. They'll assume that everything they say is truth. Um, and nothing the other parent can say will change that, um, sadly. Um, you know, the best way to, I mean, one of the strategies um, to deal with alienation is to try to instill some critical thinking skills in children and help them uh, really think through at their own developmental level um, how, you know, people, parents and parents aren't perfect and <laughs> parents can, can say and do things sometimes that aren't always um, the healthiest thing and um, how kids can maybe cope with that better. Um, but unfortunately... It's really hard. I'm not, I don't know, you know, if critical thinking, even in adult children, can help dismantle a really hardened belief that one parent is good and better than, and one parent is worse and less than. And even exactly. like, yeah. even making a video, a 20 minute video of a thousand pictures showing the kid smiling and happy with the target parent, the kid will turn around and say, but what about all the horrible, horrible times? You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they'll remember something that was minor and think about it as is the most devastating thing in their childhood. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's why I think kind of there's, you know, critical thinking is important, but at the same time, a lot of times, particularly teenagers, you know, alien, teenagers are really highly susceptible to alienation because they, they're they at an age where they think they know a lot <laughs> when they don't fully know the whole story. Um, and this is where power is really important as well in the family dynamic because we can never underestimate the influence of um, the the parent, especially the custodial parent, um, on their child, because the child is really dependent on that parent for outcomes and for rewards, uh, for the things that they need. Because um, children are inherently our dependents, uh, and when you're a dependent, you really need to have that approval of the person who has the power in the family. And the alienator has all the power. Um, they have control over when the other parent will see the child. Um, they will often violate court orders on when they 
the child will see them. They will convince the child that they don't want to see them um, and make it look like they didn't do anything. That's the child's opinion that they don't want to see them. Uh, so the, the the amount of power that that parent has is substantial. And then that child, even though they believe they're acting, especially teenagers, they believe they're forming their own opinions. They believe that they are coming to their own conclusions. They have no idea the impact of their context and environment that it's having on their perception. They're not aware of that. Um, even as adults, people are often not aware of how their environment influences their thinking. So it's it's a very um, sad. Uh, it's very sad for the child, especially when they have almost no contact with the other parent, um, because they don't ever get another opinion or another perspective on what their experience is. Right, because psychologists and teachers and professionals leap to the conclusion that the alienating parent is correct and the other parent is either a bad dad because it's, he's abusive or is a bad mom because she's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll, they'll, and, and then the, the longer time that, that, that goes on um, from that point on, is it, it further confirms that, right? So the child, the longer that they've been away from that other parent or um, and and sometimes it's a function of how long it takes to even get something through the courts. It could take a year to get a contempt hearing. Um, you know, if there's a if a parent violates a, a parenting plan uh, and they're they don't allow the child to visit the other parent, um, it could take almost a year for that parent to go to court and to um, get it remedied. Um, and in that time, that child then finally decides they don't want to see that parent anymore, and then the court says, well, I can't force that child to see them. Uh, and then that, the, the targeted parent has no no power in that situation to do anything. Um, so it is a very helpless um, kind of situation uh, for parents, and it's um, this is why we see such negative outcomes or negative impacts on parents, and, you know, not only psychologically but at work. Um, they're consumed mentally all the time with dealing with this problem. Their productivity goes down. Um, their their financial situation is completely, you know, you know, at rock bottom because they're spending all their money on court <laughs> or lawyers right. trying to fight to get their children back. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a, it poses a real economic uh, drain on society and a real public health problem for us all. How do um, how do psychologists how do you know how would even a court appointed um, psychologist um, how do they get hooked into the bad parent good parent split? Um, well, I think um, so far there has not been any required training um, to be able to understand what alienation is. So the, the, I think part of it is lack of training, um, or they've been told that alienation doesn't exist and it's just something that parents use to get custody, um, which is not true. Um, in, in a small number of cases, people have claimed, oh, I've been alienated, um, and when in fact they've been abusive um, as a strategy. But it's, it's not, it's not, doesn't those small number of cases don't capture the large number of people that that that's not happening to uh and so um psychologists you know unfortunately then aren't don't know a lot about it um and look i take even for instance my colleagues who study relationship research they didn't even know what it was <laughs> i didn't know what it was and that was my expertise so you have clinicians sometimes who don't have no idea what it is uh and they um, come across or are asked to evaluate a family to make a recommendation on custody. And typically, at, by the time they're pulled into the case, one parent, the alienated parent, has often really worked on the children to have an alliance or loyalty with them. Or worse yet, maybe they, the child children have not seen the other parent in a long time uh, and they've been really alienated from them and the children dislike them for a large number of reasons. Um, and so um, many of which are often fabricated or exaggerated. Uh, so uh, the psychologist coming into that will often hear the children say these things and we often are they're trained to believe what children are saying, uh, even though a lot of times what they're being, what they're regurgitating, are things that their parent has told them. Um, so it's um, it's easy for them, a parent to be or a psychologist to become appalled, like, whoa, I can't believe this is happening, and easily fooled by that. 
Um, and then that, that acts as a filter for all other information that that psychologist will then hear. Um, so even when they have to go and observe the other parent and get their side of the story, um, you know, talk to their collateral um, contacts and other things, they oftentimes um, won't really look at that as critical or, or as critically as they, because they've been kind of primed or they've been told to think about that parent in that in a negative way, um, so they'll overlook maybe um, important details that might clue them in that 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 what the children and the alienating parent are saying is false or incorrect, um, and oftentimes I, they'll 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 misinterpret the enmeshment of the children with the alienating parent as a really good healthy relationship like they're very close and it's very nurturing but if they really look more closely they'll see that that enmeshment is actually very unhealthy and that the boundaries between parent and child are inappropriate um, and that's a sure sign that there's alienation occurring as well and where the children see the parent as a best friend and you know, playmate or as a, you know, confidant. Um, they're told a lot of really inappropriate information about court, um, but but a lot of these, or, or, or money or inappropriate information about the other parent, um, because, and the children like that because they're treated like an adult or they're treated like, like they have more power and they have information. So they feel important in the eyes of the alienator or to the alienator. They feel like the alienator trust them and wants to tell them things. So the children then are in this dynamic of wanting to please that parent and wanting to be in this role of confidant and all these other things, but it's a very inappropriate role for that child to be in. Um, and psychologists oftentimes aren't trained to understand that. Um, and so they just assume it's a good relationship. Oh, it's healthy. They're very close. They love each other. And that's a good parent. And then unfortunately, then they miss what's happening behind the scenes. I had read, I um, had looked at, been reading the book, um, Children Held Hostage by Bryn Rivlin and Stanley Clower. And I saw, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. I saw an interview Stanley Clower gave, I think to the American Bar Association or uh, one, a magazine. And he talked about how that the psychologist would hear from a kid, oh, my mom has done nothing for me. She's not involved parents. She doesn't care. And then finds out subsequently that the mother has done a lot for the kid, including was a nursing mother for the first X number of months or year of the child's life, was involved in all aspects. And so there's this real um, a falsehood built up in the child's mind about who the parent is and what the parent has done for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because even then, if if a parent, as in a like when the children are older, um, hears the, the children will tell stories of things that happened when they were much younger that are absolutely false. You know, <laughs> things things that you know it's like wow, how how is it that they've warped and developed this belief system about things that have happened? And and you know, I've heard parents and interview parents who had to tell the kids, uh, no, I was there. I I was at that doctor appointment. I know that that wasn't what happened. Um, or I was, you know, and, and the children are like, what? You know, or, oh, like a child will say, well, I always knew that, you know, you, you were never there. You were traveling all the time. And, you know, and, and the parent's like, well, no, I was actually a stay-at-home parent at the time. And, you know, and it, it could be so disconnected with, with reality. Um, but the child has been told this and, and kind of constantly being told a one storyline by the parent, uh, the alienating parent, um, that they become to believe it. Um, and Elizabeth Loftus's work and a lot of her colleagues have, have shown this for decades, that it's very easy to implant false memories or to change elements of memories um, from childhood. Um, and people believe it. They, they, they totally believe it to be true, even though experimentally they've documented that what they implanted was false. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and it's it's not hard to do, and that's that's done by by researchers. <laughs> when you have a parent who does it, who you children inherently trust and love, it's even more impactful. Well, and it can be done very subtly. It can be done through, I think, it can be done through an attitude, um, especially if the alienating parent is part of a large group, and the whole group has the attitude. Well, you know, your father not a good man, 
or your mother. She's crazy. If they have, if the whole group has the same scornful or contemptuous attitude, they don't even have to say a word. It can be done just through attitude, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And here's where um, you know the alienating parent can really manipulate and use others around them to send a message to the child. Uh, so, a parent sometimes some parents are very skillful at this. Um, a lot of alienating parents are very crafty and very manipulative and very persuasive, uh, and they will often get other people to do their work for them. So they don't they aren't blamed themselves for the alienation. So they might say something to the teacher that, you know, hinting that the other parent is abusive or not involved or scatterbrained and forgets all about their children's homework and to only give it to them. Now that teacher has a very negative opinion of the other parent. So when the child maybe talks about that parent, then that teacher will say, well, why don't we give it to your mother or father instead? That subtle shift in how these other people in the child's life view that parent now affects that child's perception. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, and that, you know, then the other parent can say, oh, I never told the child anything. I've never alienated my child. Well, yeah, you have, but they just haven't done it directly. They've done it indirectly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's, uh, you know, this is why, you know, really assessing alienation can be very challenging because people will do it in many different forms, <laughs> and the child isn't always aware of it directly. Um, in some <laughs> cases they are, but in a lot of cases it can be very subtle, like like you pointed out. It can be, and then the people around that child have this attitude toward the other parent that can be is very negative, and the child just says, "Wow, that parent must be bad." Right. Right. Yep. So um, we have about thirteen minutes left. What can a target parent do? Are there any strategies? What are some of the things you're proposing in general? But start with what can it, is there any, is there anything a target parent can do? Uh, Well, uh, for a long time, researchers have been trying, especially clinicians have been dealing with this more on a one-on-one, you know, how can parents cope with this? What can parents say to children? Um, How can parents protect themselves? Uh, And there's been a lot of great books out there on how to kind of individually cope with it. Um, And that's that's great. It doesn't fix the problem, obviously, because this problem is systematic. Um, We see, we see alienation all over the world. Uh, And so, um, it's it's a strategy to cope with it. It doesn't fix it. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, some of the advice to parents are to, when you hear a child say something negative about the, or say something that's untrue, you don't want to directly say, well, that's not true, because then a child will say, well, wait, our, the child will interpret that as saying, you're calling my other parent a liar. Mm-hmm. And then that puts the child it, it doesn't fix it. In fact, it aligns that child more with the parent, the alienated well, what parent. Is a, what does a target parent do when a kid is saying things about the target parent that are half true or partly true but mostly false, that are <laughs> a fiction and, you know, in fact, because no one is perfect. Even the alienating yep. parent is perfect, right? So how how is a target parent supposed to handle that when there's this, crazy-making blend of fantasy and fact being thrown at the target parent as a reason not to have a relationship with them. Right. Well, I think it's important at least to start with knowing that you can't change that child's opinion, um, unfortunately. Um, But what you can do is hopefully at least plant a a seed of, well, some of that, or you know, I, I understand your opinion and I understand why you have that opinion, but that is, you need to know that there's a lot more to the story that you're not aware of. And I would tell you, but it's not appropriate because you're, you're my daughter or my, you're my son. Um, and so maybe when you're older, you'll understand it better. Um, but right now, this isn't something that you should have even known anything about, um, and especially because you don't know all the details. And I'm sorry you feel this way. I'm sorry, you know, um, and I, I understand why you feel that way. But And, I, and I, I'm really sorry that you have been put in a position to have to have an opinion on this. Um, that's probably, you know, you know, that's oftentimes what, you know, we've recommended parents do because you can't, you have to kind of diffuse it and at least plant a seed there saying, 
you know, okay, it's unfortunate you've been in this position that you have to have this opinion. Um, but that's not all the details and, you know, I won't share I won't share more with you because it's not appropriate. I mean it's very hard to do because as a parent you wanna as a person you wanna defend yourself. You wanna say, This isn't right, that's not true, I'm not that way. I'm um, not a monster. but Yeah, exactly. I'm not the monster you believe I am. But you know, it, that that won't fix the problem, and, you know, and, and, you know, like you mentioned, Alec Baldwin's kind of ranting to his daughter and, you know, it's it's understandable to get so frustrated that you, you get to that point. Um, but it's it, and so I think it's really trying to put put a, 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 you know, a parent hat on and look at the child and say it's so, you know, really try to have empathy and understand that that child has been put in this position um, to have that belief, which is so sad and hard for them. Um, and just to acknowledge that I know this is really hard for you. It's so unfortunate that you are in this place that you believe this, but there's a lot more to the story. And it's, you know, I, if I tell you anything, it's just going to hurt because, you know, <laughs> as, you know, as you don't want to make matters worse for that child. Um, right. By defending yourself, it will make it worse. And so, um, you know, and that, that's, that ties into the hopelessness that the alienated parent has. It is a really hopeless situation. And, so this is why, at least from my research, I'm trying to tackle this more at a social level. Um, understanding these dynamics and how parents are using power um, can help identify ways to, in which to limit their ability to do that um, by increased awareness. Like if teachers say, huh, I shouldn't always believe everything a parent tells me. I should try to really understand both sides of the story. You know, if it's a psychologist is treating a child and the child says, I don't want my other parent to get access to my medical records, you know, or don't talk to that other parent. You know, once they reach 16, sometimes the psychologists don't have to talk to the other parent if the child doesn't right. want them to. Right. Um, but as a psychologist, they should say, you know, there's the family dynamic. You should always hear both sides, particularly when you're treating a family system. You should always kind of get a full picture about what's going on rather than just assume that everything is as it appears. Um, so that's, that's been my strategy. Yeah. Can alienating parents be educated? Oh, um, I think the ones that are doing it um, unconsciously or the ones that maybe the more subtle ones, um, the, the people who are maybe doing it and not always aware sometimes can be. But the way I define parental alienation, it's, it's often strategic. It's long-term. It's, it's an attempt to really hurt the other parent. And a lot of times these parents have personality disorders or they're so emotionally um just dis distraught that they will not see their own role in it. Um, I have interviewed a few parents who have acknowledged that they were alienating um, as well for many years. And when they kind of came to a, an awakening at one point, <laughs> um, typically when the money, uh, they, the parents were not dependent on the other parent for money anymore. Uh, money is a big motivator here to kind of maintain. That's a, that's, that's for another show. <laughs> if you ever want to do another show, we could talk about money. Uh, but but money is, is, a, is a big factor here. Um, alimony and child support is a big kind of motivator in, in a lot of these cases. Um, so not, not entirely. It does, yeah. So a parent Sorry. who doesn't want to pay child support might try to alienate the kids so that the kid won't see the parent, the target parent, and then they don't have to pay child support to the target parent because the kids aren't seeing the target parent. Yeah, that's been one motivation. Um, you know, there's there's also, you know, alimony, you know, so if I, I have all the children, I don't have to work as much, you know, and, you know, that's been used as a strategy to try to get more money. Um, but, you know, I will qualify that by saying in many countries, they've, you know, for example, in Scandinavia, uh, they, child support is actually estimated on how much it actually costs to raise a child, not on income, um, which helps, but alienation still exists. So there's a lot of, you know, this is why I think it's really kind of a, a human aggression um, problem. Uh, so, but but it's fueled by some contextual factors such as money, um, cultural kind of beliefs, um, so um, custody arrangements, um, you know, th those types of things fuel the problem. I think it won't mm -hmm. make the problem go away when you get rid of those, but they exasperate it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but um, but money's money's kind of a a big motivator for a lot of parents. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't 
I don't know if you can educate a parent to stop. Um, you know, it's. I think courts have tried. They try to talk about, oh, you shouldn't do this. You should allow your children to have pictures of the other parent, you know, after divorce. They try to, you know, they often they'll have parents go through a education workshop or something after divorce or right before divorce. But those aren't effective. Um, they, they're not effective at all for somebody who's alienating. Um, and oftentimes people who alienate truly believe that the other person is horrible and bad. Um, and then that is then conveyed to the child. Um, and so educating them is, is not often the best strategy. Um, the, what, the most effective strategies are forcing reunification therapy uh, for the child to have with what the alienated parent. What is reunification therapy? What does that reunification therapy look like? We only have a um, about so. <laughs> yeah, um, they're they're really intensive uh, weekends or week long um, interventions uh, where the, the the child is separated from the alienated parent. The alienated parent is mandated to go to counseling or something um, to to deal with their own issues um, and identify their aggression and deal with maybe the personality disorder that they may have. Um, and then the child then is taken away, contact is taken away so that that parent cannot influence that child for a while. Um, and then that child is then with intensive psychotherapy and therapists who know how to work with this problem, then work with the targeted parent and then the child to help repair that relationship, um, address some of the mythologies and other things that the child's been led to believe, help them understand that parent's not dangerous, that the parent has always loved them, um, and really repair that relationship and then gradually start to try to bring the other, the alienating parent back into the picture um, but in a kind of more structured way, <laughs> in a in a way to monitor that it's not going to keep going, uh, or that's not going to re you know start again or rekindle uh, the alienation. And so, um, when done correctly, it's been effective. The problem is it's 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 expensive. Um, it's you know there's not a lot of uh, places that do reunification therapy where people have training to do it. Um, and so we need a lot more of that. Um, and we need, um, but there's been some good evaluations of these programs that show that they are effective when, when, when actually utilized. Well, do you want to? We have a couple minutes left. Do you want to talk about simplyparent.org and um, how it can help parents? Yeah, so um, we, I was asked. I've been serving on the board of directors, the directors now for a new nonprofit called SimplyParent.org, uh, which is uh, designed to. Uh, the mission is really to help and provide resources for parents who are the targets of alienation, uh, and so we have a number of programs that we're rolling out as part of that nonprofit. Um, and um, members or patrons of the nonprofit can get the magazine that we publish quarterly. Uh, our first issue came out in December. Um, a lot of great articles um, that are specifically written for parents to help cope with what they're going through and um, the different departments in the magazine on legal issues and re up, you know, new research that's relevant um, to parents and how to make the most of your time with a child, for example, if you only have every other weekend with them um, and that child hates you, <laughs> how do you how do you deal with that so that you still make it positive yeah. experience? Uh, yeah. So it's really just designed just for parents who are dealing with this. And then we have other programs. I, ideally, we'd love to be able to set up a hotline for parents who are coping with this problem um but so those are things we're kind of long-term plan what we're what we're working on um but we're hoping to just find a way for parents to have some place to go to to really um get some information and support and um while we still try to yeah sorry go ahead (laughs) simplyparent.org yes yes and and people can look for your book parents acting badly um, how institutions, societies promote the alienation of children from their loving families at sim- at um, parentsactingbadly.com. Is that right? Yes, yes. And we have a there's a whole chapter in our book where we talk about solutions and interventions. So if you're interested in learning more about that, um, we outline a number of them in the book. Um, and hopefully, you know, a few years we'll have an update because there's a lot of new exciting advances in the field now, too, that are promising for helping to address this problem. So. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I look forward to reading your book. Okay. Yeah, great. Thank you, okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. So that was... 
Jennifer Harmon, um, the Associate Professor of Psychology at Colorado State University, TEDx talker, and author of Parents Acting Badly. Um, and you can find out more about her and her work at simplyparent.org. So thanks for tuning in, and see you next week with TJ Scott and Rochelle Royale. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week. When you find an author you love, you read everything they publish. International best-selling author Tracy L. Slatten is one of those writers. Her book Immortal is a rags-to-riches-to-burnt-at-the-stake story of an orphan boy in Renaissance Florence. Broken is the story of a fallen angel in Nazi-occupied Paris and her award-winning romantic paranormal dystopian after-book series. Also, her bittersweet sci-fi romantic comedy The Love of My Other Life. Read one and you will be hooked. Find all of her books at TracyLSlatten.com. Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison, here to tell you GEICO has more than just great savings. Much more. GEICO's been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with GEICO, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than GEICO. More power to you. GEICO. Expect great savings and a whole lot more.